Well, today we are going to start the week, kick off an, a week of exploring and discovering and researching Giannis Zanakis. Zanakis. So today starts that conversation. So the reason that we like to do this is so that we can get the conversation started because a lot of things are new to us. A lot of things we have found that we want to corroborate. You know, we want to make sure we've got our sources, that everything's accurate. And we have a feeling that you know quite a bit about these topics as well. So we don't claim to be experts. <laughs> no, definitely not. Enthusiasts. Maybe. Just know that the perspective is that we like these things. Sometimes we actually have only heard about the person like the week that we decided to cover them. I mean, like it's that new. No, I mean, most of the time we, we have a our fans, maybe. you know, maybe we've heard some of their music. Maybe we've known for a long time that, you know, they, they're a buzz name of, you know, cosmic tape music. Um, but we haven't we, put all the pieces together. But we haven't quite done like the investigated, uh, investigative dive yeah. that we do prior to at least starting one of these conversations. But just know that if you chime in with a question or, you know, you have, you know, uh, if you want to know more about the person, we're all in the same boat. Um, yeah. and, and anyone who knows more or has a personal story about it, you know, that just enriches our research we together as a group. So yeah. that's what we're hoping to do is to start the conversation and then throughout the week we can all, you know, experience more by sharing together. Like, we want to know that your grandfather, like, actually, you know, got piano lessons from the person you know, <laughs> yeah. as, a, as a child kind of stuff. Like, yeah. please tell us your story. The more personal, you know, if they, you have their music or there's a good story about how you got into their music, um, you know, any peripheral knowledge you have about the topics related to the person, um, you know, we're all here to be like our little research society. Exactly. Um, so, but we invite you. So we will kick it off, and then throughout the week you can add to it, uh, you know, your questions, your information that you have, articles that you find, things like that, so that we can all get more enlightened. Together. So I'm really excited because I've been having a lot of Giannis Sinakis articles and videos coming across my plate through all of my scrolling and my rabbit holes that I go down on the internet, he keeps popping up. So I was like, you know what, this week we just have to do this because, you know, you need to follow the cosmic signs sometimes. Um, so we've been diving into him a bit for the past few days, and it is a fantastical world to be part of. So I'm really excited to well, be Well, he's been him. sort he of... So, there's so much. An original tape music hero for us for a long time like we've we've been listening to his pieces you know probably for five seven ten years you know like i think pretty intentionally but we haven't quite gone down like the documentary route um you know with him and it's been really fun to discover some of the specifics about his life yeah the full arc of his life is almost too unreal you know like a lot of people we've talked about their, their story just seems like someone wrote it, like it can't be real. And he, he is probably in in the top three of that for me. Um, yeah, for sure. It's he, hard to believe that he's done the things that he's done. He overcame so much personally and professionally as well. And politically. Politically, of course. So I guess um, we'll just um, 
you know, we'll jump in and, and start sharing what we've learned and the sources that we've learned from. We like to throw the links in this conversation so that you can follow along um, and double check those things with us as well and get deeper in your own time about them. Um, as always, we can't play any music on here, but feel free to, you know, use the links that we share in the conversation to listen as we talk. We'll link you up. Yeah, so um, starting with his early life, he um, is Greek, um, but his parents were in Romania when he was born. So he was actually born in Romania. So he's Romanian. And, um, he, yeah, he's kind of a lot of nationalities. <laughs> he's got a Greek last name. And he speaks a lot of languages as well. But he is very, very Greek. Um, <laughs> his family is, you know, completely Greek. But they, for some reason, and I'd have to look more into that, why he was born in Romania, why he was there in 1922. So again, like a lot of the people that we've been studying, born in the 20s, came of age during World War II. But what's really unique about him is, you know, there's a lot of parallels to Stockhausen throughout his whole life story, but his mother died when he was five, and it was very traumatic for him, and he mm -hmm. says that he never really overcame that because what it did to his life is, at age five, his father moved him back to Greece, someplace he had never been. He was raised by governesses and going to boarding schools and all these things, which, you know, to me, that sounds you know, kind of cool, kind of interesting. You're getting, you know, education that might be better than what a lot of other people are getting, but well, you've lost your mother, so. It just hit me that <laughs> we know somebody in our immediate sphere who had that same experience as a child. I'm not quite sure who you're talking about, but I'd love to. My dad. Oh, your dad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, your dad's mother died when he was about five, yes. Yeah. Also, still very impacted by that. So, things that happen. So that kind of puts you, things in perspective. Like I know that he's had a lot to overcome. You know, mm -hmm. so it makes you know. Now I'm seeing Zanakis from a completely different perspective. And then to be moved to a whole new country and all of these things that he had to deal with. But what's really the um, the thing that I've been like, oh, I want to read more about this. Is that he actually was in college when the Nazis were occupying Greece and he was part of the protests. He was in, you know, the anti-fascist movement, um, also the pro-communist movement. So he was extremely political, but I think it had a lot to do with survival and not so much this academic political standpoint that a lot of us in the Western world might have. Um, he was, you know, in, involved in the actual violence that was going on and, you know, saw a lot of his friends die. And, you know... What was Greece's involvement with uh, in World War II? Well, actually, I'm sorry, the, the Nazis invaded, but it was actually the Italians. The Italians invaded Greece um, and were attempting to take it over. Gotcha. As part of the expansion of the empire. I guess I just hadn't really heard... You know. Yeah, you don't hear a lot about Greece's fight during World War II. And for, you know, okay, we're, we're, we're studying somebody who came up during this time, but they're from Greece. So you don't think that maybe, like, this was going to have as much of an impact, but it was probably more so than anyone else we've talked about. Yeah. I know um, Delia Derbyshire talked about her experiences as a young child, hearing the air raids sirens and how much that infected her and being taken away from her home. 
and her family during the war. But he was an adult. He was in college. And so he was, you know, fighting. He, he said he was always on the front lines because he was young and he was a college student. So he has, if you've ever seen a picture of him, he uh, was actually hit by, it was actually the British who came. Actually, the, the Greeks drove the Italians and the Nazis out of Greece. And then the British moved in to try to uh, reinstitute monarchy in Greece. And he fought against them as well. And it was fighting the British that he was hit um, with shrapnel in his face and disfigured. And apparently his friends left him for dead. So he wasn't in the military. No, he was, he was just part fighting. Of, like he, he was, was part of these extremist groups. Street considered fighting? extremist groups. Protesting, maybe? Yeah, in, okay. in the anti-fascist movement. So gotcha. he was sort of, I guess, you know, his own little faction of... Protest. I, there is a name, and I will I will look that up. Of he was participating like, sort of militia group that he was resistance, part of. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. In sort of his own like unofficial. It was like a resistance way. army. Gotcha. Because. Because um, I'm just like, wait, he he wasn't suited up, right? Like, no, no. Yeah. Um, but yeah, his friends left him for dead because he looked so disfigured that they thought there was no way he would survive, and I guess they were trying to survive. Apparently his father found him, which I found really interesting. What was his father doing? How did he know where he was? Yeah. His father found him, and he actually was able to survive. Oh, Maybe he knew like, that he was going to be there that day. How and much will his friends survive and happen. told him? Yeah. Yeah, or they, yeah that's, that makes sense. His friends probably ran to yeah. his dad. So, I mean, already he's lost his mother. He's moved to a new country. He's fighting the Nazis. He's fighting the British. He's left for dead. He's overcoming being disfigured. And then he actually has to escape to France because they, because of his political activities, um, they really crack down once they kick the British out. They crack down on all the um, leftist, you know, movements and, you know, communist movements in Greece. And because of him being so outspoken, apparently he wasn't as much as his friends, but, you know, anybody who was, he was sentenced to death. So he fled to France while that was being determined, and he snuck into France illegally. And he was going to go to America, but I guess once he got to France, he, he decided liked it. not to leave. Um, so makes sense. He was never allowed to go back to Greece. It would vibe with his architectural, artistic side. So while all of this is going on, while he's like, you know, fighting and protesting and almost dying, he also got his degree in civil engineering in Athens. <laughs> How was he doing all of this? Um, he was Yeah, you couldn't a, do online schooling then. <laughs> he was truly a mathematical genius, um, and he was really just a lover of music. Apparently his mom introduced him to music at a young age. Obviously, she died when he was five. Uh, and he just was really, you know an avid listener of music, probably more than just, like, your average person. Yeah. Um, and then when he was in these boarding schools, he had to be in the boys' choirs, so he got exposed to the, you know, the classical greats, and um, apparently Bach had a big impression on him, which makes sense because his music is very mathematical. Well, so, he could hear the, the patterns, like, early on, right? Like, he was kind of noticing that, like, right off the yeah. bat. That was his whole entry point into you know, being sort of obsessed with music. Yeah, he had such a mathematical mind, he could hear the math in the music, and that was, you know, the connection for him. But also, you know, he was an engineer and an architect. 
So all of these things connected for him, and I think it has a lot to do with his Greek heritage and um, his study of Greek philosophy. And you know, a lot of you know these people like Plato, they were multi multidisciplinarians. You know, uh, so I think that for him. These things were not separate. He wasn't just one thing. He wasn't just into math, and so he was an engineer. You know, he saw the way that math existed in nature, and how music existed in nature, and how all of these things were connected. It's very cosmic if you think about it. Yeah. Um, so he brought his point of view to everything he did, whether it was buildings. The thing that I heard him talk about, and I'm going to see if there's any links yet that I need to throw in here for you guys. Um, we've talked about a lot so far, but really we've only covered early just life. Just his early life, just get, getting you know an idea of who he was and where he came from. But he talks in this one interview, and I have part two of this interview pulled up. Um, there's a part one, and I was struggling to find it again, um, where he talks about... Um, when he was in these protests in college, protesting the, you know, the Nazis and the fascists, um, he would be in these crowds of students and protesters, and they would be chanting things, and he would be hearing that as like a rhythm that was predictable. And then he would say, after a while, you would start to hear the chaos because people would get out of rhythm and people would start shouting other things and other, you know, rhythms would start happening. And then maybe there was gunfire and all of these sounds together. If you listen to them as a whole, created a different sort of what he was calling randomness, um, like timbre. So. I, when I was hearing him talk about that, it felt like the way he was talking about it was very influential in his then, you know, at, when he went on to study music and, right. and composition, that these things that he experienced left such a mark on him. And I, of course they would. You know, what he went through was extremely traumatic and yeah, intense I mean, and that, life and death. He can't get away with that not affecting. And it drove <laughs> him to, like, see the world as a place that he wanted to make art and make more beautiful. And, man, just what that forges in a person to overcome those things yeah, and I mean, survive. It seems to me, too, that the one thing that a lot of these folks have in common, you know, like uh, Pierre Schaefer, for example, mm -hmm. um, you can't really teach that level of... Um, being in tune mm. to your environment, yeah. whatever that's called as a overall the, characteristic. Yeah, the worlds that they grew up in forced them or gave them an opportunity to hear things that be hadn't been heard before. sensitive mm -hmm. to your environment. And maybe that has a little bit to do with coming up in a time of war. Like you were literally I mean, it's a, it's worried. It's the most common thing that we have with about, everyone. About, you know, having to flee a place that you're in. Maybe you're just eating or, mm -hmm. you know, having a conversation with friends and all of a sudden it becomes a literal war zone. So your senses are already so heightened. Are heightened, that makes right. Sense. And I have a feeling that there's some, you know, something to that in terms of, you know, a lot of these electronic music pioneers, mm -hmm. like you had to be so in tune. And they basically took that and 
um, allowed it to inform uh, their artistic decisions later in life. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with, um, you know, if you're in tune and you're hearing things that sound like music and rhythm and timbre, that isn't in the traditional, what was mostly classical music at the time, and most of these people were studying classical music, um, you're going to bring something new to it because you have those experiences and that viewpoint. You can't really separate that. Right. I mean, it might be a good segue to talk about who he ended up studying with mm -hmm. later in his career, but that that person also you know, instilled that same set of values in Stockhausen. Yeah. Um, he, so when he fled to Paris, that's really where he stayed for most of his adult life and where he did most of his work. He was able, again, one of these like Forrest Gump things, he was able to get work as an architect with the top leading architect of the time in Paris. You know, like how does this, how is that real? I yeah, don't know what I, he was I doing. Said you, yeah, the time when you could kind of like just elbow your way in I'm really good at math, okay, you know. He must have been, I mean, he started as like a pretty low-level person. And he um, might have just worked his way up because people realized he, he was brilliant. He had a lot to share, and so he, he was able to prove himself. But um, his most famous work is the Phillips Pavilion at Expo 58, which was in Brussels. Um, and this is probably one of the coolest buildings I have seen. Expo 58. Expo 58. So super I'm cool grab. event. Um, I believe that he designed it to um, because there was a piece of music that was going to be performed oh, in yeah. it. Oh, yeah. So um, he actually, and I read this somewhere, but I'll have to confirm that most of the buildings that he designed were specifically for music to be experienced in them. He was a big believer in um, an environment and the piece of music mm -hmm. that was to be played to be sort of connected and one and the same. So he wrote um, what I believe is his first electroacoustic music concrete piece um, that was played as you entered and exit, exited the Phillips Pavilion. But it was really built for Edgar Brazy's um, poem electronique to be played. So once you entered the building, that's what you experienced. Um, and obviously, all the ties to Pierre Schaefer because they were all working in um, his studio and collaborating and using the equipment and studying with him. Although I did hear that Pierre Schaefer was hardly ever around because mm. um, he was always having to like you know, go to the board meetings and, like, fundraise and, like, prove why they were, you know, allowed to exist and He was fighting get the for equipment. the actual, like, keeping it alive, mm -hmm. you know, as an institution rather than making tape pieces at that point. Yeah, so, so simultaneously, he is an architect um, with Le Corbusier. That was this person's name, this architect. Maybe you've heard of him. Um... And he's studying with Olivier Messiaen, who also taught Stockhausen and others. But um, when I listen to Xenox's music and I listen to Stockhausen, I hear so much of like lot, these similar, yeah. a lot of similarities. Energy, I would say. Um, Xenakis has a much more harsh. Um, 
kind of like tenseness to his music, whereas Stockhausen sometimes can get more, you know, musical and I can have it on in the background a little more. It depends on what the piece is. Right. But with Sinox's music, like much of Pierre Schaefer's, it's very like mechanical sounds. Um, and you can't really do anything else. It calls your attention. There's, you know, there's there's no reading a book while listening to Xenox's music. Maybe you could go on a walk. <laughs> um, but really, it grabs every sense that you have in your body. <laughs> That's really interesting to me. Like, whatever it is that, you know, is the difference there between, like, being able to do something while something else is on versus it mm-hmm. completely captivating you and, and your attention, you know, like, what's Well, I'm not a brain scientist, but my personal experience with certain types of ambient music is that I feel like it speaks to the back of my mind mm-hmm. and sort of, like, maybe a subconscious layer of my mind mm-hmm. um, where I can have it on and it's like I'm listening, but I'm listening with a different part of myself. Right. And even, I would say, like, pop and rock music, I can kind of go in and out of listening to it because there's familiar structures and rhythms that, like, maybe a different part of me is experiencing. Um, And then I might come in and, like, you know, hear a certain horn part or an interesting electronic sound or a melody that I grab onto and I want to pay attention to, and then I can kind of go back. But with music concrete, with specifically Xenox's music, it is the front of your mind. It is your present self. It is your body. You are experiencing it. And if you turn any of that off and try to do something else, you really don't hear it in the same way. Mm. That's just my street brain science you know, take on right. that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's interesting. And I, I agree, you know, that that seems to take place with... And, you know, that that defines, I would say, ambient music is that, you know... It's supposed to be like a, a piece of furniture in the room. Yeah, it does not specifically call your attention. It, it's ambiance. It mm-hmm. blends in with whatever, you know, environment you're listening to it. In. It can enhance your experience of the environment you're in. Yeah. But I wonder if context has anything to do with that. Like, you know... But like you're saying, it's almost like you know you're listening to Zanakis and it and it pulls your attention. It kind of forces you to stop doing what you're doing mm-hmm. and listen in. It wants you to stand in the middle of the Phillips Pavilion and just listen. Right. Nothing else. Versus you know another piece comes on, ambient genre, different artist. All of a sudden you know you get back into what you're doing. Like that's the thing that yeah. I'm interested in is like what is the hidden what's the what's the secret sauce there i think it has to do with um the level of randomness in his music there's not a repetition this is similar to stock hasn't talked about this he thought most popular music had too much repetition um so your brain can't really get into a rhythm like most ambient music is like a loop of something over and over and over again maybe a slight variation Right? It's a soothing experience. <laughs> but this is, it could be every millisecond, it's changing. There's no set rhythm. There's nothing to groove to. So you're kind of like in this state of like shock, <laughs> kind of experiencing it. And um, also the types of timbres. Yeah. 
they're well, they're you, grading, they're harsh, right. they're mechanical. You seem to be much more um, drawn to like metallic mm-hmm. sounds. Um, maybe it's a good time to talk a little bit about how he's considered the grandfather of granular synthesis. Yeah, I mean that's that's his legacy, and that's what he worked the rest of his life on. We're kind of jumping to that, which is totally fine because that's. That's really the meat and potatoes of what he was working towards, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. Well, just that, you know, granular synthesis is, you know, the idea of taking uh, a sound, you know, that exists in the wild, so to speak, and maybe recording it and then chopping it up into very small milliseconds long pieces, and then changing the playback speed, uh, which then affects the density, uh, you know, of, of the micro sounds, if you will. And um, Zanakis is, you know, documented as sort of being the godfather of this concept. Um, and what's interesting is that he used sound generators and tape splicing to kind of create this effect but it's something that is really popular now um, and has become more popularized with the advent of computers and, you know, and digital signal processing and being able to, you know, <laughs> have a device, you know, that's, that's coded to do this process for you automatically. Um, you know, and it's, I think it's hit a point of saturation almost at this point. Um, in certain circles in the sound you know experimentation world definitely not in the mainstream right 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 right. yeah absolutely. but it will yeah I could see it will it. be applied to other disciplines I'm sure mm-hmm. it, it already is percolating that way but in a mainstream way it's gonna hit a tipping point but I guess my point is that I wonder if the granularity of the sound that he was experimenting with you know, I wonder if that has anything to do with the attention thing. What about the attention thing? Like it grabbing, you know, a piece. Oh, 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 absolutely. That there's such a granular level of change going on. That it forces your brain. Your brain is saying, like, this is something to be alarmed of. <laughs> and you also, you can't really hear the individual sounds you can so, hear so is that, it as right. an overarching new sound as you hear everything together. And so maybe the the lack of familiarity... Mm-hmm. Your brain doesn't have anything to grab onto to become familiar is with. ...is causing you to mm-hmm. pay attention to it. Like, you're, yeah. you're almost, like, constantly trying to figure out, is this something that's going to hurt me? Or I have a feeling I can play this and won't get in trouble for it because it's so obscure, but just an example of granular synthesis... So that was a uh, fast and slow granular synthesis. But I do find it interesting that um, he was doing this, 
he was playing with this as a concept because he was applying his, you know, mathematical equations about probability and using tape machines and equipment to simulate almost an idea that wouldn't be possible until the computing power was where it is today. It strike I think because of the fact like when we we researched him we were trying to to find you know where where's the tape involved you know like like how how we knew when he is worked he at, with Pierre Schaefer so he made some music concrete pieces and you can find it here and there but it's definitely not the focal point that leads me to believe that he wasn't all that enthused to be working with tape necessarily like he he did it because that was what existed at the time yes. to accomplish his goal. Which is in in my mind two specific schools of tape musician. There's those that embraced it. It spoke to them. They enjoyed it. They they like you know there was something about the the oxide that really like you know gelled with them as a person. And then there's those that like used it. For example, uh, Pauline Oliveros. Yeah. She used it because she had to, but that wasn't it for her or necessarily like. You know, she didn't continue. She didn't get excited about computers and, and the capabilities right. there, whereas some people rejected, you know, computerized anything. Um, so there, are, yeah, there's definitely like two schools there. Eliane Radig. Yes. You know, continued to use tape. Still using her ARP and tape. And <laughs> tape, you know, because there was something to that that's you know that she gelled with as a person, you know. Yeah. Versus, so it's like a personality thing. Yeah. And then, I mean, even, uh, um, what's her name? Uh, <laughs> I'm drawing a blank right now. Uh, Radiophonic Workshop founder, Daphne, Daphne Orem. Yeah, even Daphne Orem um, embraced, you know, these, you know, the idea of the computer. Yeah, that's career. right. She, she converted her Aramics idea into something for the computer, um, but wasn't able to fully see that through. So I would say that it's actually a lot more rare to find someone that... That doesn't go towards that. That continued, you know, to use tape mm -hmm. as their main um, bread and butter, you know, even past the time of things being possible in digital sound processing. Yeah, and I think it probably had a lot to do with, you know, where are they in the world? What do they have access to? What are they exposed to? What's their life journey? You know, all those factors. So with that... My point is going to be that I think we're in a special time now that I feel like people are really starting to embrace the tape medium mm -hmm. for all of these characteristics. Like, I get asked all the time, like, why would you use tape? And the reason is because, you know, or why would you use it when it's not practical? It doesn't make sense. You know, there's no real reason. You know, it doesn't provide any convenience. Right. Um, you know, compared to other methods that are available for recording and, and sound processing and things. And my answer always has to do with why it, you know, it's it has this unique property to it. You know, it has like sort of this magical... Yeah, and it's an and. Essence, and it's sort it's of an and. It's part of our studio. It's, it's not part the of it. only it's not thing, the only we, thing can we can use. We can... Right. We can bridge some things. With so my point is that that we're in a sort of a special time that people are choosing to embrace it even though it's not convenient mm -hmm. for its special properties. Well, there's something about the tactileness and also I think because we look at screens all day. 
we're in our computers all day. Right. Um, this it's something to get away from all of that and it's, to use our hands and to have a more mechanical experience with something. And some of the things that you know may have been considered a detractor, um, you know, back in the day, like the noise, oh yeah, signal to noise ratio, and you know the fact that every time you play a tape, you know, you're basically losing degrading. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, you're degrading the the recording. You know, we've sort of flipped that, you know, uh, completely on its back and, and decided, hey, that's actually what we really like about tape. You know, like those same principles and properties um, are the main reason why we use, you know, tape, I would say. Those are the things that I, that I like about it. I would say, though, at the, the height of tape music, they were in commercial settings, they were in universities, they were in, you know, places where there was a demand, there was a deadline. Um, they obviously didn't have a lot of the conveniences of other aspects that we have now. So I think people who got really frustrated with it were those who were being pushed to create something for a certain purpose within a certain deadline at a certain level of quality that maybe they couldn't get or they couldn't get within the time frame. So, you know, especially if you're working with, so that's one side of it, but if you're also just innovating and you're working with an idea that you have, the process is so slow and kind of risky, right? Like one false move and you've lost all the work that you did. Right. So, you know, because we can back things up, we can, you know, digitize stuff, it's not as risky. Right. So I think that's part of it too. Is yeah, the setting and they like were working the um, you know that I think that has a lot to do also with why analog synthesis kind of went out of style, you know, because of the convenience of the computer and mm -hmm. MIDI and everything. Well, was, like the eighties, nineties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the industry was you know sort of being forced to embrace the digital technologies for convenience sake, and all of a sudden you know like you could buy a mini a mini Moog for. You know, like a hundred dollars. Yeah, <laughs> so crazy. The waves of things coming in and out of style. And now and we're full circle. Yeah. I see people using, you know, like Atari computers from the '90s. Yes, you're on a quarter-inch ledge all the time. I love that. <laughs> What's up, Kyle? We like to live on the edge. <laughs> um, I see people using like Atari Falcon ST computers from like the mid '80s, you know, to do MIDI sequencing because it's just the sequencer and the MIDI port was built into the computer. And it's like, well, why would you do that? Um, it's because it's it's fun, it's interesting, it's you know, it's basic. You know, you don't have all these other distractions. You're not going to get IM'd. <laughs> on the yeah. same computer that you're using to sequence a song with. You know, so we there's this desire for things to be more simple. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I find that really interesting. Yeah. Um, so he was... Uh, back to Zanakis. Yeah, back to Zanakis. We like to go up on these tangents and then come back to things. But um, the, the thing that I that really grabbed me that I love the most about what he did was this thing called the U-Pick. Oh man, it's so good. So I have this YouTube mini documentary of him talking about it and talk about computers, talk about retro computers that were cutting edge at the time. 
Um, this was. It seems like one of those things like that would still be cutting innovation. edge, though. Like it's. I want one. Right. I know they're. I don't even know if they exist anymore. And when they did, they were only in like museums, or like a, a, they would have one in like a cultural space where people could come and play with it. And I'm glad we mentioned Daphne Orm because one of the first things yeah. that I thought about when I saw this thing was like, <gasps> it's the Oramix device taken to the next level. Yeah, he was able to take it to the next level. He lived till 2001. I think he was still working until like 1997. So he was able to live kind of and work in that moment where we were getting some more access. But it's really, really funny <laughs> <laughs> the setup that he had it's like you need oh i gotta find this uh image of what it um the layout of it it's like three computers and a separate monitor and oh right like the the little diagram the thing that you draw on is like and a magnetophone massive. which is a reel-to-reel recorder <laughs> yeah like it, it's insane so it's this thing that you you draw the waveforms and like kind of what you want their character to be over time. Um, and then I think that it gets translated somehow to one of the computers. There's a couple different processes involved. And then that spits out the sound. So it's like an advanced ceramics machine because she was drawing on film and then the machine was creating the sound from the graphic score. Right. Um, it which, seems like a very similar process, just digital. Like, but it's like drawing so overwrought with how many components are involved to make it happen. But it's a really cool, I think, like front end user experience. Yeah, it looked. You're like just it. like drawing on a giant pad of paper. Like he has, he you know, children are doing it. Like you don't need to know anything about music. And that was his whole vibe. Was he wanted um, because he didn't formally study music, and the music world, you know, eventually considered him one of the great composers, but. He was yeah. very rejected um, because he wasn't a traditional composer. And, you know, at the time, everyone was doing those graphic scores, and he was writing things more traditionally. So I found that really interesting that he ended up inventing something for graphic score. Yeah. I mean... Uh, <laughs> I gotta find this. There it's were funny. a lot of people that were, you know, composing music at around the same time he was that were completely rejecting everything that he was doing. Um, oh yeah they called him like you know they made fun of him really like he had a hard time didn't I mean we talked did we kind of brush on the fact that he had a hard time take, having somebody take him on oh no he didn't as a student um, he studied yeah. with Olivia Messiaen but took he, a while to get there <laughs> he tried to study with like four or five other people and they were like you're too old and you don't know anything. You don't know anything about music, like, and you're too old to start. You're too old to be a beginner. We would have to do Isn't music theory terrible? foundations with you, and we're not going to yeah, do that. Yeah, he should have been studying harmony and, and things like that. And he, um, when Olivier Messiaen took him on, I think it was kind of informal because he told him to just embrace the things that he already knew about math and his Greek culture and to just do whatever he wanted. Which is very similar be to his the unique self. advice that he gave Stockhausen, his other student. Do only what is completely unique to you and your experience and who you are and how you view the world, and then make that. Okay, I found this screenshot of, which I can't share, but I'll try to share it later. Um, oh, you found it. Of the layout of the UPIC, and it's like this main terminal, and then that goes into some sort of processor, and then that goes out to... Two different computers. It looks very similar to an 80s MIDI set. And also to a tape machine. Um, 
and then also out to a, a visual component. So it like basically takes what you draw and puts it into a computer that then is, is the it. visual as well on the computer, but then it also goes to a tape machine that then asks, produces the sound and there's a microphone. It is hilarious, this drawing. It's amazing. So um, I love this because, you know, there's quite a few clips on YouTube of him talking about it and people playing with it, and it's just bizarre. And the sound it makes, of course, you'd be like, well, that's not music. Right. Why are we even bothering with this? But it was all part of his journey to develop algorithmic music and granular synthesis and uh, randomness. He was really, really interested in randomness in music. Yeah, and earlier when we were discovering this about him, I mentioned that, you know, the random module is always, you know, like kind of a very tasteful module and like a modular synthesizer setup. Um, and there's different sort of colors of randomness, you know, much like there are filters and oscillators. And I just, you know, I have a feeling that the people who designed these modules, you know, must have studied, you know, Xenakis's work, you know, because like it's like he's sort of like the name, the big name in randomness, you know, when you, when you kind of go down this <laughs> yes. uh, this path of of learning about, you know, who used it in in their um, compositional style. Stockhausen was another one, you know, they mm -hmm. they were similar in that regard. There are a lot of similarities between Xenakis and Stockhausen, I'm realizing now. A lot, and so yeah. it makes sense that they had a, the same mentor. Yeah, Xenakis became a professor. Similar to yeah. Terry Riley and mm -hmm. Pauline Oliveros and uh, a few other ones. Um, what's his name? Rush. Um, and who was the, what was the name of their teacher? Do you remember? Oh, gosh, I can't remember it now. Mm. This is what happens to me. I absorb <laughs> Too things. much information. I absorb like a sponge, and I can tell you, like, you know, an hour-long story that's, like, verbatim, and then three weeks later, I'll be like, have we met? Right. But they had a lot of similar um, theories and, and ways of creating. Yeah, so having a mentor, those people don't get as much, you know, credit or maybe, you know, clout, fame, and stuff for well, me. We're not talking the about teachers. them on yeah, no. Cosmic Conversation. They weren't uh, the, the, you know, the artists out there on the, the front lines. But they're the most important, you know, like we wouldn't have all these people without their influence. Maybe we should do a show that is sort of dedicated to the... An episode just for the teachers and the mentors? The mentors of... That's a good idea. <laughs> but they weren't really using tape music. Any of these people. It's a good point. Composition instructors, but somehow the people they were teaching were experimenting with yeah. the tape. They weren't like go go chop a tape sound up into a million. No, that's pieces. that's what I, re I remember when we were doing our Daphne Oram conversation. I was like, who taught her tape music? No one. Well, um, as we've learned by you know studying many philosophers. Um, it's all about discovery, right? Like Yeah, she was just like, I'm going to play around with this stuff. Pierre Schaefer was the same way. There was nobody that was like, oh, you must go to this mentor and teacher and learn about tape music. Curiosity leads to discovering and being true to who you are. 
apparently. It's really good advice. You know, I think these things combine lead to yeah. being a good artist. Yeah, all of the people so far that we studied have been very individual, very much like kind of like loners, maybe not as appreciated during their time, you know, that sort of thing. Where right. they weren't going with the grain. Zanakis certainly wasn't. He was like they weren't just filming themselves playing, you know, like uh, you know, composers Beethoven Bach, you yeah. know, like <laughs> And we need that too, but this is just what we happen to be interested in right now. Um, there's something that also uh, jumped out at me that I want to research more this week with your help. Um, something where it said he designed a cosmic city. And the link that I found goes to a 404. So I have to look into of this more. It does. <laughs> because it's so cosmic, it doesn't exist. I know, we were like, cosmic city. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we're also uh, pretty enthusiastic about architecture and design, and I think that goes along with, like, spaces where music happens and ambiance and all that kind of stuff. So for me, it's going to be really fun this week to live in the brain of, of Xenakis because it's the way that he saw the world and, and created physical structures as well as the music. Mm -hmm. for And if there's a cosmic city out there, I have to find it. Definitely. So that's that's what I'm excited about. Um, yeah, I was I was shocked when I found out that he built the you know he designed um, it said by himself mm -hmm. the the Phillips Pavilion at Expo Fifty Eight. Yeah, he used a specific sort of mathematical process to build this crazy looking structure that is like it's like nothing I've ever seen. So he's a really singular figure. That's what really I want my dream house to look like yeah. at this point. It's a little bit sharp. A lot of sharp edges. Yeah. <laughs> but um, one other thing I wanted to share was one of his most important pieces, or his first pivotal piece, was Metastasis. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to listen to one thing this week of his, it's probably this. Which, he was taking the advice of his mentor in naming all of his pieces. Oh, like, they all have Greek names. Greek yeah. names, yeah. So that was like his way of... I think this is an English version of spelling it, though, culture. this link that I just did. But yes, so he really embraced his Greek heritage and that all of that spoke to his music. Um, and there's like a lot of other stuff we didn't touch on, so we'll probably do a lot more in the group this week talking about all these different concepts because he did a lot of music for uh, orchestras, which again, that's not tape music, but the way that he did it really um, fed into his furtherance of electronic music. So I wanna talk about that stuff more, but I think we're getting close to running out of time here. Yeah, it, it might be worth mentioning that Despite the fact that his writing, his composing style was very unorthodox as composed as a opposed to like traditional composers, um, he still made it a point to notate his work in a standard notation, and so that's kind of one thing that sets him apart from some of these other experimental composers. I still imagine that it was it's very, very hard to read and play his music, but people are doing it. So that could be a fun thing that we um, cover this week as well is... Um, what, we'll watch Jacqueline try to play one of his yeah, pieces Yeah, we'll watch me piano. try to play one of his pieces. No, what I meant is <laughs> there's plenty of stuff out there, of YouTube videos and such, of people playing his music now, and I'd be really interested to see more of that. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, so super excited to have a group research on Giannis Zanakis this week. And hopefully by the end of the week, I'll be able to say his name 20 times fast. I think the first tape composer release um, by the Limelight label, which I've posted about on the group that I love, um, had a Zanakis piece um, in it. So that was one of my first, uh, I guess, times being exposed to his work was through that label, um, Limelight. Mm -hmm. They're a... They're doing great Started out as a traditional jazz label. That's right. Ruth White was put out on Limelight? Yeah. Ruth White was one of their releases. But then they sort of, like, in the late 60s, they transitioned to uh, more experimental Mm -hmm. tape music and a lot of good releases out on Limelight. You'd think we were getting an endorsement by them, but we are not. Well, they're... We just like them a lot. They're long uh, since defunct, I would say. Yeah, so. I'm just saying. Thank you guys for joining us today. Um, it's been a while since we've covered a specific person in our Cosmic Conversations, and I'm excited to be back on track. And um, if you're excited, as we are, to talk about Giannis Sinakis this week, I know I am. So if you've heard of him before, or if this is all new to you, we'd love to know where yeah. you're at on the spectrum. <laughs> yeah, post all of your um, Yanni stories. He likes to call him Yanni because <laughs> it's so similar. It's he thinks it's funny. <laughs> but I, I'm still trying to get my my mouth to say Giannis Sinakis. I'm going to be working on It's a little bit of that. a tongue twister. I haven't attempted it. I don't think I'm going to. <laughs> That's why you keep calling him Yanni. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I wonder if he had a nickname. We'll, uh, yeah, we'll definitely be talking more in the group this week about Giannis. Or Yanni, if you want to call him Yanni. I don't know if he would mind. <laughs> since he's not around to complain. But, um, yeah, have a great week. And we'll uh, look forward to talking to you more in the group. Thank you for checking out another episode of our podcast. Before you tune out, please listen to a selection of music from our Cosmic Tape Music Club members. Check the show notes for artist information.
One, two, one, two.